Welcome to FRT Podcast, the IF podcast at the intersection of finance, regulation and technology. I'm Lawrence White, Consultant Senior Advisor, Digital Finance at the IF, and with me today is Jessica Renier, Managing Director, Digital Finance, also with the IF. Welcome, Jess. Today we'll be talking about a topic that has been very much on our mind recently at the IF, and that is Central Bank Digital Currency, or CBDC. Specifically, Jess will step us through the IF's responses to two recent consultations that have just closed. One is a submission dated 20 May in response to the Federal Reserve Board's January 20 discussion paper about a US CBDC. And the other is a response submitted June 15 to the European Commission's targeted consultation on a digital euro. Both of these submissions are publicly available on our website, irf.com, under innovation, and were put together through intensive rounds of member feedback. Just to quickly set the table, what is a CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency, and how does it differ from commercial bank money on the one hand and cryptocurrencies and stablecoins on the other? Sure, Lawrence. So just at a very high level, Central Bank Digital Currency, or CBDC, is a digital instrument that is issued by the central bank itself. So you can think about it like a sovereign currency, like the dollar or the euro or yen, guaranteed by the central bank. And this would be a liability, potentially, of the central bank if these do come to fruition around the world. It carries no credit risk, if so. So you can think about it as the average consumer, ideally much like cash, essentially, if we're talking about a retail central bank digital currency. So to step back a moment and just compare that to commercial bank money, commercial bank money is, you know, is issued by commercial banks against which they hold deposit insurance because that money is not a direct liability of a central bank and, and thus requires that insurance for that guarantee. A stablecoin you know, issued by a stablecoin issuer, again, they hold reserves against those coins against a stable coin, ideally, so that a person who wants to cash out a stable coin can then know that they can cash it out at the amount that it is worth and that dollar for dollar or euro for euro, you will get exactly the value of that stable coin at any time. And just comparing to cryptocurrencies, finally, these are totally unbacked by anything. They're purely speculative assets don't necessarily and, and probably don't have any formal liability structure um, and you know, issued by any number of entities. Thanks. Um, so why did the IF decide to address these specific consultations? I mean, IF's the global body, can't answer every national or regional consultation, so why sort of zero in on these? These are pretty important questions. We're talking about a potentially big thing that these central banks are considering doing or even researching doing here, arguably changing the nature of the world's reserve currency, one could say, and and multiple currencies, in fact, that countries and investors hold as reserve currencies. So a decision like that merits some pretty serious thought and reflection, not just by the central bank, but by all the participants in the financial system and in the, the country, quite frankly, which is why they have issued consultative documents asking for feedback of the financial industry. So given the significant and momentous decisions that they have in front of them, the IAF certainly wanted to help deliver some very constructive feedback and thoughts to their questions to help them 
you know, weigh those pros and cons and weigh some of the questions that they are seeking response to just in view of the really global impact that we'd be talking about here. And so what are the key messages that the IF has sought to deliver in its consultation responses about a US CBDC on the one hand and a digital euro on the other? Sure. So key messages, there's a whole lot. If you look at our documents, you know, both of the documents you can see are quite extensive and robust given how constructive we've tried to be in responses. The highest level thing I would say, and this applies to both of the responses, both to the Fed and the EC consultation, is that we're supportive of them looking into a CBDC and asking these questions. They're doing their research. They're trying to get informed. These are good things, right? As the world evolves and technology evolves, it makes sense that they would be asking these questions, as are many central banks around the world. That said, we do see a lot of challenges in the future if they do decide to pursue a retail CBDC in particular. Not necessarily challenges that are insurmountable, but challenges for sure. And this isn't a quick decision. It's not just a quick, innovative instrument that they'd be putting out into the market. You know, like I started with, this is a sovereign currency of a nation. And I think people are, are used to seeing new cryptocurrencies being launched you know, every day, just left, right and center all the time. And it's tempting to think that the central bank can just kind of like punch one out like an entrepreneur. But that's that's not the case, nor should it be the case. The thought in a lot of innovation is to, to innovate fast and fail fast and start again, right? And pursue that kind of a strategy. But you can't do that with a sovereign currency. A sovereign currency can't afford to fail. And it also can't afford to cause other major challenges or significant risks to the financial system that maybe you don't see happen right away, but eat away at pieces of what allows the economy to be strong and lending to be strong and the economy to have a cushion during a downturn so that it doesn't fall apart very quickly in the case of recession. And you won't necessarily see some of those consequences come to fruition right away, but they could absolutely put an economy at risk or create financial stability risk. And with some of those showing up, you know, once they do show up, it's too late, right? So that's why so much thought and research and planning and both quantitative and qualitative assessment of an impact assessment is necessary, which we state in both of our consultation responses, the importance of conducting such an assessment of the impacts of potentially launching a CBDC. If such effects were to happen, but just much further down the road, that is also failing, right? That just because it's not an immediate fail to the average eye, later, that would also be failing if it failed the economy or failed from a financial stability standpoint. And again, I would say a sovereign currency, you just can't afford to fail. So that's really the main reason why we stressed in our submissions that it is just so very important that the Fed, the EC, the ECB, any other central banks as they move forward in researching, and particularly then if they move forward in with launching a CBDC, that they work very closely with the private sector, both to understand how it will impact them, as well as to actually walk through operationally, you know, when we put this thing 
into whatever system it is and it traverses their system, what what happens realistically and watch it work? So just the uh, consultation submissions uh, mentioned uh, a few threshold considerations, which more or less should all be green flags before a CBDC would be launched. And could you just step through those for us, please? Yeah, absolutely. So we did outline a number of threshold considerations quite up front in the Fed's document and got at them throughout the EC response. First off, that the public policy objectives sought to be advanced by a CBDC really should be clearly enunciated and, and prioritized. Because if you if it's not clear what those objectives are, then it's pretty you know tough to figure out how how you should make design considerations around that and evaluate whether it would actually be positive or negative for the economy. Second is that it should be determined that a central bank digital currency would be more effective than other means in achieving those policy objectives. I say that and and also acknowledge that the IF would not expect that uh, or you know or require that a CBDC would be you know uh, better um, or more effective on every single one of those policy objectives. Clearly, it probably won't be. It's a pretty high bar to ask of any financial instrument to uh, you know be for sure the number one solution to uh, currently what all different functions happen in the payment system today. But on the whole, when taken together comprehensively, it should be pretty clear that it would be more effective on the whole in targeting most of those policy objectives. Third, looking at the, the trade-offs between those objectives should be clearly enunciated and determined. So again, where there will be trade-offs, just make sure that we're aware of what they are, we're consciously making the decision to be okay with that trade-off um, and moving forward. Further, the preferred scope, um, whether we're pursuing a retail CBDC or a wholesale CBDC, should be quite clearly defined. And the infrastructure and economic and liability model required for implementing the preferred scope of a CBDC has to be determined. When I refer to the economic and liability model, um, I mean, you know, the, the, the business model has to work. The current intermediaries in the financial system, if they are, are involved in such a system, they will both be taking on new risks as part of, you know, operational risk, some of their services today services that are provided to consumers may be cannibalized as a result of CBDCs, but they may also gain other areas where they could have value-added services built on a CBDC. So either way, one needs to you know, weigh those different benefits and, and the risks and just ensure that we're not in a situation where the risks are going to outweigh those benefits to ensure that you have the appropriate intermediaries in a situation where the business model actually works for them to participate in, in the system. And then finally, just a robust pilot phase would really be needed involving the private sector just to make sure that we can actually see how operationally a sovereign currency in, in a CBDC form would transit the system and we know what's going to work. You mentioned evaluated services. Could you just unpack a little bit more what kind of benefits some of our members or our members generally receive that might arise from a CBDC? 
Sure. So I know I've focused on a number of risks at the beginning, again, because we do see some challenges with proceeding. However, there are potential benefits that, you know, a number of financial institutions would perhaps see being possible. I mentioned new value-added services. So anytime that there's a new financial instrument, you know, one can imagine that you could build other services that would be useful to consumers that, you know, use that particular financial instrument. So much in the way that there are value-added services on consumer deposit accounts and other instruments, you could imagine something possibly similar. It's interesting to think about those things because, you know, until that kind of comes to fruition, it's not clear exactly what those services would be or what they would look like, but it's kind of an interesting mind exercise to do. It's possible that there could be reductions in transaction costs or more efficient distributions or, uh, or transactions in certain instances and in certain kinds of value chains, um, whether it be in supply chain kinds of models and trade finance or other types or parts of the industry whose use case would fit. Um, more specifically to a CBDC. But that gets us to the question of the difference between a retail CBDC that is focused more at the consumer level, thinking more about it as the average person using such an item like cash versus a wholesale CBDC where you're talking about you know, much larger institutions that are moving quite large amounts of money all at one time in a different kind of purpose and different value chain. So turning to the risk side, both submissions do say that of potential concern to our members is the potential for CBDC and its attendant infrastructure to crowd out private sector financial innovation and investment, as well as potentially to disintermediate bank deposits and potentially reduce or would reduce the ability of the financial sector to lend to the real economy, including mortgages and SME lending. Another risk that our members perceive is a heightened systemic run risk, and this is a risk of depositors running from bank money to assets that are pretty safer, such as cash in the past and perhaps in the future CBDC. So thinking of those risks, Jessica, what are some of the challenges around the main mitigants to those risks that have been tabled by central banks, such as the ECB and the Fed? They've considered some mitigants, but what are the challenges that our members perceive? So that's a great question. And before I dive into the risks, one other thing that it should have gotten to on pros is really where the IF you know, starts in its responses to both of the consultations is that we are attracted by and our members are attracted by the potential for an interoperable system of smooth, faster transactions globally. And, and one of the things that the IF really focuses on and what we care about as a global institution is the transfer of funds and data cross borders. It's something that we're particularly aware of and that we do quite a bit of work on to try to ensure that nothing hinders those transfers and that we can support any innovations or improvements in the speed and confidence in such transfers. And I do think from a CBDC standpoint, if various central banks and countries were to build CBDCs and they managed to do so in a fashion that allowed their systems to be quite interoperable with each other, then that is certainly 
one area where there may be potential benefits or efficiencies in cross-border payments. But now turning back to the risk side, I would say that clearly the most immediate risk or the risk that we heard the most feedback about was the danger of a run, particularly in times of crisis, kind of a, a rush away from commercial bank deposit accounts into central bank digital currency in the case of a retail CBDC, if there was a perceived difference in the safety of uh, those instruments. So again, a CBDC being an instrument that would be very likely the direct liability of a central bank, in which case it's guaranteed by the government. And in the case of a commercial money bank account, it requires deposit insurance up to a certain level to give that same kind of confidence. And the average person doesn't necessarily you know, see the difference on a daily basis or, or even perceive that there is a difference because it would be just an account that seems to be safe, guaranteed, and has insurance behind it or is backed by the central bank directly. But were there a something that drove a difference in that perception of the two instruments, whether it be functionality that was built into the CBDC or other things that would drive kind of a difference in the perceived, just the perceived value of the instrument that could affect both the perception of safety of the instrument or just the value of holding one instrument over another in any given circumstance. And that would be very detrimental to the financial system if such a run or a rush of funds were to you know, happen and many deposits were to move out of a commercial bank deposit category. Given that, banks are able to lend in the way that they lend in part because they hold those deposits. And if they don't have those deposits, then it will it impinges their ability to lend um, and also fundamentally suddenly changes what their balance sheet potentially looks like in a way that could cause a crisis, a run on banks. And could some of those impacts also affect the cost of lending to the real economy with the mortgage interest rates and SME lending? Absolutely. One would imagine that in, in a situation where a bank um, is put in that, that spot, which would be a tough spot, but where you know their business model has been compromised in one way or it has pushed them to be, um, you know, hopefully not in a crisis position, but you know, pushed them in one direction that would be less, um, you know, less uh, healthy for their balance sheet, then they have to look for ways to, to make that up. Right, to to balance out their balance sheet again. And one of those ways, the outcome would end up being a more expensive credit for the average person. So some of the mitigants that have been identified by the ECB and, and to some extent the Fed, although we, I think, perceive the Fed may be kind of cooler on these mitigants than the ECB, um, are limits on the size of CBDC wallets that could be held by single individuals or households uh, or corporates perhaps tiered remuneration, so beyond, say, uh, 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 beyond a certain uh, wallet size, you, you would get a negative interest rate in, instead of a zero rate and designed to kind of render use of the CBDC as a store of value unattractive. And another one that's been mentioned uh, would be limits on transactions or accumulations within a particular time period. And, and a fourth one is some emergency measures for central banks to kind of stop outflows in 
times of crisis. I mean, from your perspective, just what, what are some of the issues that we perceive with some of these mitigants as to, say, fungibility or, or other issues? So on the fungibility front, where I was previously talking about differences in perceived value, you know, depending on what functionality that CBDC would or would not have in terms of the design, then it would change what someone perceives to be the value of the thing that they're holding, um, quite possibly, um, in which case that opens up a, a, a bit of a gap um, or, or basis for, for arbitrage between the two instruments. So certainly something to think about. I guess I shouldn't jump to the conclusion that it's necessarily a concern that that, that would be the case. It's just not something that we are used to thinking about. So something to, to work through. One of the other challenges to some of those mitigants that I would highlight is that some of them depend very much on the successful development and use of a digital identity in order to actually execute or effectuate what those mitigants would be. So in the case of limitations on holdings and wallets, if the objective was to say we want a particular individual or entity only to be able to hold up to a certain amount of CBDC at any given time, and whether it is in only one wallet or, or just as a total sum, right? We don't know these things yet. Perhaps that won't be one of the objectives, but if it were to be one of the objectives so that no one person or one entity could hold you know, more than a total sum of a certain amount of, of CBDC, whether that was for to manage um, financial stability concerns or to manage AML, CFT concerns on the illicit finance side, certainly that would apply. How would somebody know whether one wallet actually belongs to the same person? If, if there's only a limit on the wallet, then maybe somebody has 10 wallets instead of one wallet. Or a corporation could you know, potentially essentially all roll up to the same business or the same corporation, but hold many different wallets that appear to be different corporations. I mean, uh, things that happen today, you know, in, in like traditional finance, they, they happen today and there are mitigants and there are controls for these things explicitly in AML, CFT, and in other regulations for exactly that reason, because you need to know where the money is going, who it's leaving from, who it's going to, and who, who holds it um, overall. So I don't see why those wouldn't apply here. Great segue into perhaps the last substantive topic, which is around privacy. Uh, I mean, what are some of the considerations around privacy of a potential US or, or Euro CBDC that we would like to highlight? Yeah, I mean, for a CBDC to be widely adopted, if it's a retail CBDC with just the population, then privacy is going to be a very important feature. Know that there's a lot of talk or concern by some people that a CBDC could allow the government way to track, you know, what they do with their money, exactly what they spend it on, when they spend it in a particular way, um, and then could, you know, potentially try to change their behavior as a result, things like that. I, I know it sounds a little bit funny in some ways, but I mean, they are legitimate questions that that perhaps could be done by a country if those authorities wanted to. Um, I don't think authorities necessarily want to do that, but we like guarantees. We like to know that um, in in a country where privacy is valued, that we have a guaranteed and clear legal structure 
that would hold accountable the institutions and parties that would be part of the system to high privacy standards that we would require of any other kind of transaction, you know, that we do today. So that's not to say that the institution shouldn't have any data. You know, financial institutions have access to transaction data currently for good reason. It helps them to offer better priced services that serve customers and, and consumers well. And that's a good thing. There's certainly a balance. And I think, you know, in the EU in particular, there's already GDPR, um, EU DPR, these rules that are already in place. So one wonders kind of why they wouldn't naturally apply. And in the US response, we saw the need for the Fed and other authorities to articulate the privacy framework more. I guess we have the Bank Secrecy Act and the Fed's sort of presupposition seemed to be that all the privacy issues could be dealt with by the intermediaries who would be subject to those sort of rules. But in our sub, we pointed out not, that not all privacy issues can be delegated to the intermediary layer. Um, if there will be limits on individual account balances, then presumably there will be some identifiers needed uh, at the central bank or by infrastructures. Just zooming out a little bit, I mean, you, you know, what, what are your other observations or general impressions about the CBDC debate and, and how things are evolving? There are a couple of things I found very clear to me just going through this process and during the debate. One of the things is with regard to the consultations themselves, just the difference in the two documents. So the Fed's document was very much focused on evaluating the pros and cons of a CBDC, um, understanding the you know potential consequences again, whether good or bad, to financial stability, to financial inclusion, to uh, illicit finance concerns, like all kinds of things. It was very much a fact-finding mission and a questioning of what other questions have we not asked that we're missing that we should be asking so that we can evaluate whether this is a good thing or, or not you know, report or document that I think is, you know, it's exactly what I would have expected out of the Fed. It's very Fed. <laughs> the EC document, I would note, focused very much on the how as opposed to the whether. There were very few questions um, relative to the rest of the questions that focused on, you know, financial stability risks or understanding things that would cause you more to, to question, to ask, again, pros and cons of whether a CBDC should be pursued, far more focus and attention on precise questions of functionality, how to create it, what combination of these different features would people want to be included. And so a pretty stark difference between the two documents, which I would say, I think also properly reflects the public speeches and dialogues of the Fed and the ECB in terms of where they currently stand in their research and approach and posture towards a moving forward with a CBDC, you know, just they're at different stages, I think, in, in thinking through their thoughts. With that, the one other thing I would point to, just as an overall observation, is that we're often used to thinking about financial instruments simply within the context of the financial industry and the central banks and not the, the bigger whole of government, other agencies pulled into the discussion. And what strikes me about just the way that the CBDC uh, discussion and choices and movements are evolving around the world 
you know, the, the differences in motivation of different countries um, at this point for pursuing a CBDC or not, you know, whether they have a good payments infrastructure or not, or perhaps it's a way to leapfrog from where they are to a more advanced technology or a way for them, hopefully um, in the way that they're seeing it, to connect with other cross-border payments in countries than we currently have in, in their system. Just a number of different motivations you can imagine. And there really is a rainbow of different motivations. And one of those things that's really fascinating to me is the national security implications that various countries are examining around the potential of pursuing a central bank digital currency. And to that end, you know, in our submission to the EC consultation paper, we do um, speak to their recognition of uh, strategic autonomy as being an aspect of what they are evaluating in the potential of, of issuing a central bank digital currency. They talk about pan-European payments. And in our response, we say that at the end of the day, right, the decision of, of the collective national security apparatus of Europe to judge aspects of strategic autonomy is important and pan-European payments are, are one variable in that decision. But we do very much recognize that it's a bigger whole of government question. Thank you. And a fascinating mix of topics that all seem to come together in the CBDC debate. What are the next steps that the IF is going to be pursuing around this topic? I can imagine a, a lot of next steps as uh, CBDC and its development um, is going to be around for years, I'm, I'm sure, and that the roadmap for um, continued research and development around CBDC is not going to be a short one, as I'm sure many of our listeners are, are gathering from discussions. So with that, I'd, I'd say, you know, the IF will certainly continue to engage with the U.S. and the EU and other central banks to understand how they're advancing or beginning to research CBDC. BDC is, as well as working with the BIS, the FSB, you know, the CPMI around their cross-border payments, uh, you know, their faster payments roadmap, certainly, you know, issues that we're addressing on a number of fronts and, and working with on various fronts. But the most important thing and, and is really key to the IF is going to be the, again, the collaboration between the private sector and the public sector as these entities do research and, and develop, if they so do, choose to develop digital currencies, CBDCs, the close continued collaboration will certainly work to help facilitate that and certainly to provide any of our useful thoughts where we can be constructive and help. Okay, well, thanks so much, Jess. That's been really informative and hopefully quite instructive to our listeners. Both of our submissions, as I mentioned earlier, are available at if.com under the Innovation tab. All of our FRT podcasts are also available through if.com and also through Apple and other podcast subscriptions. And with that, I'd like to thank the listeners and sign off. Thank you and bye-bye.